Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the Hemming Brainiac List podcast. The podcast of excellence. Oh my god, I nearly fell asleep. I was watching 8 out of 10 Cats Does Countdown, which I just love that show at the moment. Um, and um, now I'm trying to stay awake. That's me slapping myself in the face. Um, what are we talking about here? Of Human Bondage, Chapter 67. We touched on Kant. <laughs> Sorry, that's not funny. We we touched on Kant and the categorical imperative without a bunch of waffly nonsense. Nice one, M. Captain Venom said, This chapter felt really meat and potatoesy with Mr. M laying down what seems to be the main thesis of the book. Life is experienced through emotion and people are slaves to emotion, the human bondage. Reason is pointless. Philip is a slave to his love for Mildred. Price, her obsession with being an artist. The vicar, his pride. And so on. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was one of those um, kind of meta chapters where it's like, this is the point of the book. This is the, the pivotal chapter where it's all laid out in a nice, neat little row. Uh, and the the human bondage, where slaves to the human condition, where slaves to human emotion. Um, yeah, it's a nice way to put it. I always think about this thing that I can't remember where I picked this up or heard this, and I'll be paraphrasing it heavily. But um, it was about how the ancient Greek gods, or Roman gods, or maybe both, or just maybe it just was ancient gods in general, were all sort of, you know, the god of something, the god of thunder, the god of, you know, um, war, etc. There was all different gods like that. Um, And they were all seen, they were all things that existed that were greater than us as humans, things that were out of our control. And then it was really interesting to note that there was things like the god of lust, or the god of love, and those are different things. And um, there was sort of there was emotions mixed in there, like the god of um, revenge or or that kind of thing. And there were those emotions that are so heightened that we are slaves to them. Like it, it essentially, it was like in the same way that thunder happens to us, like we experience it. It was like those emotions happened to us rather than us creating them so things like love or lust or you know rage I don't know whatever they are um, yeah that was more things if when you have those emotions it doesn't feel like you're having the emotion it feels like the emotion is happening to you um, <clears throat> anyway let's continue swims to the mum fishy said this I believe the discourse was much improved by the hot hot rum punch here's Charles Dickens and Charles Dickens's recipe uh, for eight cups of rum, hot rum punch, you need three quarters of a cup of sugar, three lemons, two cups of rum, one and a quarter cup of cognac, five cups of black tea or hot water, a heat-proof bowl or enamel cast iron pot, and to garnish you'll need lemon and orange wheels, freshly grated nutmeg. Oh, that already sounds awesome. I'm not going to read the actual directions because... 
It's pretty straightforward. It's, it's almost like a mulled wine, but with rum instead of wine. Yum. Uh, I am Norwegian, so this I both agree and disagree with Philip's view on reading. There are certain passages that jump out at you and become part of you. But at the same time, I strongly disagree that you'll absorb what is worthwhile of someone like Plato on the first read through. Given Philip's material... Yeah, there are lines that stick out, isn't there? Aren't there? Um, You know, when you... I was actually just talking to my cousin about this literally tonight. He was saying about how sometimes there'll just be a line and it will just be, or like not even just a line, but a, a chunk, a paragraph of a book and it'll stand out. And he said he was reading a book recently and uh, the paragraph stood out so much that he messaged the author. And I can't actually, sh- can't remember what the book he was talking about was, or the author, but he messaged them to say like this one little run of words here is you know hit me at the right time with the right build up and struck me as you know some of the best writing i've seen in years uh and what a great feeling and also he might have just said this because he's my cousin but i tend to believe him he said that there's two or three times he said there was three actually there was three times in recent memory when that had happened and one of them was that book, another one was something else, and the third one was in the opening lines of my new novel, Personal Fable. Uh, he said how the character had the crunching of the gravel under his feet, and um, I'm, you know, the, the opening chapter is set at a lake, and uh, he said he was transported there to that place, and um, I don't know, gives me the warm and fuzzies, you know, to feel like my writing struck someone as good writing isn't that nice it's almost like i'm doing an ad for my own book here it's available at andalewis.com <laughs> i have norwegian said this uh, i both oh wait i've read that bit given philip's materialist rationalism i was a little surprised at how much he likes metaphysics though i'm in full agreement it's still metaphysics that resonates and interests me It's the only thing that still deeply interests me after rationalism. Political theory and economics have strayed further and further from my thoughts. Those topics almost make me groan nowadays. I guess that's how you feel about religion, Ander. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I like political theory and economics. And yeah, they... Politics... I don't love to engage in conversations about politics, definitely. Um... Yeah, religion too. Yeah, maybe. Maybe we're on the same page there or we're at least feeling the same way about different topics. Um, You know, when you just feel like you've done a topic to death and everyone out there has got all different opinions and they're all entitled to their own opinions and I don't even know what my opinion is on those things because I'm just kind of over it and I don't care. (laughs) That's how I feel. It's just a complete indifference to it. And so I think it's, it's almost like a... Not boredom exactly, but it's just a disinterest, I suppose. So when I'm kind of when it's thrust upon me, I just i i get it. It, it gets tedious quickly. Um, I suppose you all know that by now, though, if you've been listening to this podcast for for a while. Swim said the moment she said this. The absolutely first thing I thought of was, I bet I'm Norwegian will find this chapter interesting. <laughs> 
Uh, I I liked this chapter. I think it might be a bit of a surprise to people that I really liked it. I love metaphysical conversations if if they're kind of on my level, you know. I think if it becomes waffly or pretentious and like too abstract, I just lose it. But when it's directly related in with the character's life and nice clear metaphors and that kind of thing, I don't know. I, I yeah, you know, I can't tell you why I like this and, and not others. It's not really even clear to me, but it might even just be about me. Maybe I was in a mood. Oh, who cares? <laughs> who cares? Oh, sorry. I'm yawning. I've, um, which is a good thing, because it's... What is it? It's 11pm at the moment. 11.08. And I need to get to sleep relatively soon, because I've got to get up in the morning and go to a book launch party for one of the schools that did my school program this year, um, which I'm really excited about, because... Last year, I think eight or nine schools did my program, and that's a pretty standard year. This year, it's four, and that's a low number. And this is the first of the book launches for the year. There'll be three more to come, but I'm not really sure how much of a book launch the other schools will have. I think the reason this school can have a book launch is because it's outside of the zone which is regional Melbourne it's a kind of a out out in the out in the sticks it's out in the mountains so I think because of that they are able to they don't have the same restrictions on them that other schools who are in the metropolitan area they do I think I'm not really sure they said they cleared it (laughs) and that I'm allowed to attend the book launch party so um, that's great um anyway what can be better than celebrating that um a couple of dozen primary school kids are now published in a book published authors it's pretty fun all right here's an ad for you um patreon dot no wait i mean you can go to patreon.com slash the hemingway list if you want but I just changed my mind. I already mentioned Personal Fable, so I'll re-mention Personal Fable. My latest novel, um, it's reviewing very well recently. And I'm very proud of that. If you would like to check out some of the reviews or check out the blurb or the cover art, andalewis.com will get you there. You might have to click around a little bit. <laughs> um, or you can look it up on Goodreads as well. But if you want to buy a copy, andalewis.com is the best way to find it very very cool alright um let's read the next chapter before I fall asleep on you sorry for a yawny podcast no one wants a yawny podcast um chapter 68 goes like this one morning Philip on getting up felt his head swim and going back to bed suddenly discovered he was ill All his limbs ached, and he shivered with cold. When the landlady brought in his breakfast, he called to her through the open door, 
that he was not well and asked for a cup of tea and a piece of toast. A few minutes later, there was a knock at his door and Griffiths came in. They had lived in the same house for every year, but they had never done more than nod to one another in the passage. I say I hear you're seedy, said Griffiths. I thought I'd come in and see what was the matter with you. Philip, blushing, he knew not why, made light of the whole thing. He would be all right in an hour or two. Well, you'd better let me take your temperature, said Griffiths. It's quite unnecessary, answered Philip irritably. Come on. Philip put the thermometer in his mouth. Griffiths sat on the side of the bed and chatted brightly for a moment. Then he took it out and looked at it. Now look here, old man, you must stay in bed, or I'll bring old Deacon in to have a look at you. Or, and, oh, sorry. You must stay in bed, and I'll bring old Deacon in to have a look at you. Nonsense, said Philip. There's nothing the matter with me. I wish you wouldn't bother bother about me. But it isn't any bother. You've got a temperature, and you must stay in bed. You will, won't you? There was a peculiar charm in his manner and mingling of gravity and kindliness, which was infinitely attractive. You've got a wonderful bedside manner, Philip murmured, closing his eyes with a smile. Griffiths took, shook out his pillow for him, deftly smoothed down the bedclothes and tucked him up. He went into Philip's sitting room to look for a siphon, could not find one, and fetched it from his own room. He drew down the blind. Now go to sleep and I'll bring the old man round as soon as he's done the wards. It seemed hours before anyone came to Philip. His head felt as if it would split. Anguish rent his limbs, and he was afraid he was going to cry. Then there was a knock at the door, and Griffiths, healthy, strong, and cheerful, came in. Here's Dr. Deacon, he said. The physician stepped forward, and an elderly man with a bland manner, whom Philip knew only by sight. A few questions, a brief examination, and the diagnosis. What do you make it? He asked Griffiths, smiling. Influenza. Quite right. Dr. Deacon looked round the dingy-looking lodging house room. Wouldn't you like to go to the hospital? They'll put you in a private ward and you can be better looked after than you can here. I'd rather stay where I am, said Philip. He did not want to be disturbed and he was always shy of new surroundings. He did not fancy nurses fussing about him and the dreary cleanliness of the hospital. I can look after him, sir, said Griffiths at once. Oh, very well. He wrote a prescription, gave instructions, and left. Now, you've got to do exactly as I tell you, said Griffiths. I'm day nurse and night nurse all in one. It's very kind of you, but I shan't want anything, said Philip. Griffiths put his hand on Philip's forehead, a large, cool, dry hand, and the touch seemed to him good. I'm just going to take this round to the dispensary to have it made up, and then I'll come back. In a little while he brought the medicine and gave Philip a dose, then he went upstairs to fetch his books. "'You won't mind my working in your room this afternoon, will you?' he said, when he came down. "'I'll leave the door open so that you can give me a shout if you want anything.' Later in the day Philip, awakening from an uneasy doze, heard voices in the sitting room. A friend had come in to see Griffiths. "'I say, you'd better not come in tonight,' he heard Griffiths saying." And then a minute or two afterwards, someone else entered the room and expressed his surprise at finding Griffiths there. Philip heard him explain, I'm looking after a second year's man who's got these rooms. The wretched blight is down with influenza. No whist tonight, old man. Presently, Griffiths was left alone and Philip called him. I say, you're not putting off a party tonight, are you? He asked. Not on your account. I must work at my surgery. Don't put it off. I shall be all right. You needn't bother about me. That's all right. 
Philip grew worse as the night came. He became slightly delirious, but towards morning he woke from a restless sleep. He saw Griffiths get out of an armchair, go down on his knees, and with his fingers put piece after piece of coal on the fire. He was in pyjamas and a dressing gown. "'What are you doing here?' he asked. "'Did I wake you up? I tried to make up the fire without making a row. "'Why aren't you in bed? What's the time?' "'It's about five. I thought I'd better sit up with you tonight. "'I brought an armchair in, and as though I thought, if I put a mattress down, "'I should sleep so soundly that I shouldn't hear you if you wanted anything.' I wish you wouldn't be so good to me, groaned Philip. Suppose you catch it. Then you shall nurse me, old man, said Griffiths with a laugh. In the morning Griffiths drew up the blind. He looked pale and tired after his night's watch, but was full of spirits. Now I'm going to wash you, he said to Philip cheerfully. I can wash myself, said Philip, ashamed. Nonsense. If you were in the small ward, a nurse would wash you, and I can do it just as well as a nurse. Philip, too reek. Weak and wretched to resist, allowed Griffiths to wash his hands and face, his feet, his chest and his back. He did it with charming tenderness, carrying on, meanwhile, a stream of friendly chatter. Then he changed the sheet, just as they did at the hospital, shook out the pillow and arranged the bedclothes. I should like Sister Arthur to see me. It would make her sit up. Deacon's coming in to see you early. I can't imagine why you should be so good to me, said Philip. It's good practice for me. It's rather a lark having a patient. Griffiths gave him breakfast and went off to get dressed and have something to eat. A few minutes before ten, he came back with a bunch of grapes and a few flowers. You are awfully kind, said Philip. He was in bed for five days. Nora and Griffiths nursed him between them. Though Griffiths was the same age as Philip, he adopted towards him a humorous motherly attitude. He was a thoughtful fellow, gentle, and encouraging, but his greatest quality was a vitality which seemed to give health to everyone with whom he came in contact. Philip was unused to the petting which most people enjoy from mothers or sisters, and he was deeply touched by the feminine tenderness of this strong young man. Philip grew better, then Griffiths, sitting idly in Philip's room, amused him with gay stories of amorous adventure. He was a flirtatious creature, capable of carrying on three or four affairs at a time, and his account of the devices he was forced to in order to keep out of difficulties made excellent hearing. He had a gift for throwing a romantic glamour over everything that happened to him. He was crippled with debts, everything he had of any value was pawned, but he managed always to be cheerful, extravagant and generous. He was the adventurer by nature. He loved people of doubtful occupations and shifty purposes, and his acquaintance among the riffraff that frequents the bars of London was enormous. Loose women treating him as a friend told him the troubles, difficulties, and successes of their lives, and card sharpers respecting his impecuniosity stood him dinners and lent him five-pound notes. He was ploughed in his examinations time after time, but he bore this cheerfully and submitted with such a charming grace to the parental expostulations that his father, a doctor in practice at Leeds, had not the heart to be seriously angry, angry with him. I'm an awful fool at books, he said cheerfully, but I can't work. Life was much too jolly, but it was clear that when he had got through the exuberance of his youth and was at last qualified, he would be a tremendous success in practice. He would cure people by the sheer charm of his manner. Philip worshipped him as, as, 
as at school he had worshipped boys who were tall and straight and high of spirits. By the time he was well, they were fast friends, and it was a peculiar satisfaction to Philip that Griffiths seemed to enjoy sitting in his little parlour. Wasting Philip's time with these amusing chatter and smoking innumerable cigarettes, Philip took him sometimes to the tavern of Regent Street. Hayward found him stupid, but Lawson recognised his charm and was eager to paint him. He was a picturesque figure, with his blue eyes, white skin and curly hair. Often they discussed things he knew nothing about, and then he sat quietly with a good-natured smile on his handsome face, feeling quite rightly that his presence was sufficient contribution to the entertainment of the company. When he discovered that McAllister was a stockbroker, he was eager for tips, and McAllister, with his grave smile, told him what fortunes he could have made if he had bought certain stock at certain times. It made Philip's mouth water, for in one way and another he was spending more than he had expected, and it would have suited him very well to make a little money by the easy method McAllister suggested. Next time I hear of a really good thing, I'll let you know, said the stockbroker. They do come along sometimes, it's only a matter of biding one's time. Philip could not help thinking how delightful it would make it would be to make fifty pounds so that he could give Nora the furs she so badly needed for the winter. He looked at the shops in Regent Street and picked out the articles he could buy for the money. She deserved everything. She made his life very happy. All right, there we go. There's another chapter for you. Poor old Philip's not feeling great. Have your say about this chapter at the subreddit. Thanks very much for listening. I'm off to bed. I'll see you tomorrow.